Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, murder of a child, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Every shop in Shadwell was closed on Sunday, December 22, 1811. This wasn't common in the small neighborhood along the Ratcliffe Highway in East London, but things hadn't been normal there for a long time. About two weeks before, a shopkeeper named Timothy Marr had been found dead in his own home. His wife, his apprentice, and his three-month-old baby had been brutally murdered right next to him. Their heads were bashed in with a blunt instrument, their necks slashed down to the bone. Early 19th century Londoners knew their city was dangerous, especially in the rough-and-tumble East End. But the vast majority of crimes occurred in shadowy alleyways and darkened streets. The idea that an entire family could be killed in their own home caused panic to spread. And though the investigating authorities tried to round up suspects, they seemed to be going nowhere. Then, just over a week after the Marr family massacre, the killer struck again. This time, a pair of pub owners named Mr. and Mrs. Williamson were found dead in their living quarters on December 19, 1811. Their maid was killed alongside them. Mr. Williamson had complained about a strange man lurking outside his tavern earlier that night. But beyond that, there wasn't much evidence to go on. One person said he'd seen a tall man leaning over Mrs. Williamson's body. Another said he'd seen two men running away from the scene, and one of them called to the other with an Irish-sounding name. Newspapers printed outlandish theories of who the killers could be, and followed along closely as the local constables and magistrates brought in new suspects. But one by one, each case hit a dead end. As the church bells rang out at noon on December 22nd, three coffins lowered into their graves at St. Paul's Church. Mr. and Mrs. Williamson, along with their servant, were being laid to rest. But their murderer seemed nowhere close to being found. The church's reverend choked on his words as he tried to make sense of the Williamson's deaths. But if the crimes on Ratcliffe Highway seemed confusing, the investigation that followed would be incomprehensible. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the Ratcliffe Highway murders. Last week, we covered the brutal massacres of the Mars Linen Shop and the King's Arms Tavern. This week, we'll follow along as the incompetent investigators zero in on their prime suspect and possibly ruin the case in the process. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. As the Williamsons were buried on Sunday, December 22nd, 1811, the investigators were still scrambling. London didn't have a coordinated police force at the time, and professional detectives were unheard of. Instead, they had a loose collection of church officials, political appointees, and night watchmen, with a few police officers mixed in as investigators. These agencies hardly ever communicated with each other and had never dealt with an investigation like this. As public fear ratcheted up and worried citizens clamored for justice, the investigation got messy. Suspects were arrested and questioned seemingly at random. Many of these accused suspects were foreign-born and continued to be held in jail even after they presented solid alibis. The Shadwell magistrates got to work early on Monday morning, December 23rd. A few tips had come in over the weekend, and they had a fresh batch of possible culprits to talk to. One of the most promising suspects was 27-year-old John Williams, a sailor who lived at the Pear Tree Public House. The Pear Tree was just a few blocks away from the King's Arms Tavern, where the Williamsons were killed. Like many sailors, Williams had a mysterious past. It wasn't even clear where he'd been born. Some said Ireland, others said Scotland. All the magistrates knew was that he'd been seen at the King's Arms a few hours before the owners were killed, that he'd returned to his room at the Pear Tree late that night, and that he seemed to have more money after the murders than before. The young sailor was of average height and therefore didn't fit the description that the Williamson's lodger had given, a tall man leaning over Mrs. Williamson's body. But if he was working with a taller accomplice... He could have been the shorter man seen running away from the scene. Williams also had connections to both of the murder victims. He'd sailed with Timothy Marr before and was a frequent customer at the Williamson's Tavern. All of this made the magistrates suspicious. They brought the young sailor in for interrogation and were surprised when he admitted that all of the facts they had against him were true. They were just missing some crucial pieces of context. We've heard that you spent Thursday night at the King's Arms Tavern and were seen there around 7 p.m. Do you deny that? Not at all. It's one of my favorite places in the city. Mr. and Mrs. Williamson have always made me feel welcome there, and Thursday was no exception. The beer is clouding my memory, but I must have been there until about um, 8 o'clock. I even recall Mrs. Williamson patting me on the cheek that night. You think she'd do that to her future murderer? I don't think I'm allowed to speculate on that. And where did you go after the King's Arms? The other tenants in your lodging house say you didn't come home until midnight. Oh, come now. Is midnight really out of the ordinary for a man on the town? It is when there's a murder down the street. Fair point. Well, if you must know, I went to see a surgeon about this pain in my leg. Hasn't gone away for years. Figured now is as good a time as any. And you were there until midnight? No, sir. It was far too expensive for a poor seaman like myself. I spent the rest of the night with a few women, visited another tavern or two, and went home. Interesting. 
You call yourself poor, yet you came into the jail last night with a considerable amount of silver. You think the only way to make money is to rob and murder? Get your head out of the gutter, officer. If your brain was working, you may also recall that I had a few tickets from a local pawn shop in my pockets. I sold some clothes there before I was picked up by your friendly associates. John Williams did have pawn shop tickets, but the dates on them were never checked. So it's unclear if he was telling the complete truth about where his money came from. But even though the evidence against him was fairly thin, it was enough to keep him behind bars. The 27-year-old was sent to Cold Bathfields Prison, where he joined a dozen or so other suspects. The magistrates were desperate to look busy in front of a terrified public and continued to round up suspicious-looking men around the city. These men were arrested for reasons as vague as having a coat that resembled the killers or having a few spots of blood on their linens. Almost all of them were Irish. Many of these suspects were released soon after they arrived. The investigators were clearly pulling at straws. But then, on Christmas Eve 1811, they received a message from Newgate Debtors Prison that changed everything. A man named Mr. Vermelo had been following the case closely from his cell. He'd read up on all the gory details, including a description of the weapon left at the scene of the first murders. It was a maul, which is a type of hammer. Investigators had found it caked in blood, sitting next to the lifeless bodies of the Marr family. It took them more than a week to examine it closely and notice the initials etched into its handle. It looked like they said J.P. The weapon also looked like it had been chipped on one end. Mr. Vermelo recognized both of these markings. He'd seen tools with similar markings at the business he ran, the Pear Tree Public House. After some bureaucratic squabbling, the Shadwell magistrates were able to get the murder weapon from another agency working on the case. One of them carefully carried the package to Newgate and sat down across from the eager businessmen. Well, I'll be. You recognize it? Sure do. It feels like I've seen this thing a hundred times. Those initials are from one of my old lodgers, a German, John Peterson. He's away at sea now and asked for me and the missus to take care of his toolkit. And you've seen the hammer like this in the tool chest? Yes. Now that I think about it, I used one of the malls myself a few weeks ago. Accidentally broke the tip on that chisel end there. If I recall correctly, I think it was in just the same spot. Interesting. You've done the great service, Mr. Vermelo. Remind me of the name of your business again? The Pear Tree Public House. The Pear Tree. Does someone named John Williams rent a bed there? Yes, sir. Mr. Williams always stays with us when he's in town. At last, the magistrates had a real clue to work with. After weeks of vague descriptions and gossip, the innkeeper gave them the breakthrough that they were looking for. Mr. Vermelo was certain the mall came from a tool chest at the pear tree, and they had a pear tree lodger sitting in custody. As he made his way back to the Shadwell public office, the officer knew he needed to learn everything about John Williams. He started contacting the original witnesses of the murders, as well as anyone who knew or lived with Williams. They obliged, even though it was Christmas Eve. By 7 o'clock that evening, 
the public office's courtroom was packed with witnesses, ready to give any information they could about this new suspect. A man named John Turner spoke first. He was staying in the Williamson spare room on the night they were murdered and escaped out the window before the killers could get to him. Turner was also the only person who caught the murderer, or one of the murderers, in the act. He told anyone who would listen about the man he saw leaning over Mrs. Williamson's body, rifling through her pockets. According to Turner, the man was tall and wearing a loose hooded coat. He also said he'd heard the man's footsteps at one point and was sure that the killer's boots didn't have nails in them. This was notable because a pair of footprints had been found outside the first crime scene. These were made by a pair of nailed boots. Only the wealthiest people had more than one pair of shoes, so this was a sure sign that more than one killer was involved. After John Turner recounted his memories of that night, the judges called John Williams to the front of the courtroom. Turner's testimony had been interesting, but this was the real moment of truth. If Turner could identify Williams as the tall man, a conviction would be almost inevitable. Unfortunately, Turner didn't make it that easy. Mr. Williams, can you please stand? Mr. Turner, is this the man you saw crouching over Mrs. Williamson Thursday night? I... I, I'm not sure, Your Honor. Do you recognize this man at all, Mr. Turner? I do recognize him, yes. I've seen him at the King's Arms before. How many times before? Did you see him there Thursday? Two or three times, Your Honor? He was a regular around there, and to your second question, I'm not sure. I was in my cups myself that night. John Turner couldn't positively identify John Williams as the killer, so the magistrates moved on. The investigators wanted to know if Williams' clothes were stained around the time of the murders. They called the washerwoman from the pear tree to the stand. The laundry woman said she'd seen blood on one of his shirts a few days after the Marr murders. The judge's ears perked up. She described two torn shirts with bloody spots around the collar and sleeves. Some of the marks looked like fingerprints. The washerwoman didn't think anything of it. Her clients got into bar fights all the time, so she cleaned the shirts without question. The magistrates asked if she'd seen any marks on his clothes in the time since the Williamson's murders. She hadn't. The Shadwell magistrates didn't give John Williams a chance to defend himself before they moved on. The bloody shirts didn't directly connect him to the murders, but they showed he had violent tendencies, which was enough for the haphazard legal standards of the time. Next, they needed to definitively connect Williams with the mall found at the Mar shop. Because Mr. Vermelow was in debtor's prison, his wife was called up to identify the weapon. At first, Mrs. Vermelow was more hesitant than her husband. She admitted that the trunk containing the tools was left unlocked. Lodgers like Williams would have had easy access to it. She also said that there were two or three malls in the tool chest three weeks prior, but that all of them had disappeared in the time since. One of the magistrates showed Mrs. Vermelow the bloody hammer. It still had human hairs stuck to it. She couldn't bear to look, but luckily, the washerwoman said she recognized it. 
She had two sons who liked to play with the tools at the pear tree, and she'd heard them mention a mall with a broken tip. It was getting late in the candlelit courtroom, but a messenger ran to fetch the laundry woman's sons. When they arrived, they described the mall flawlessly and didn't flinch when the magistrates held up the gory weapon. They calmly confirmed that it was the same hammer they'd played with. Though many aspects of the case still seemed to be up in the air, one fact seemed irrefutable. The Marr family had been killed with one of John Peterson's tools, which were left at the Pear Tree Public House. That meant the murderer lived at the pub or had some connection there. And this functioned as yet another piece of evidence against John Williams. The court finally adjourned close to midnight on Christmas Eve, 1811. The investigators had made a remarkable amount of progress in just one day, but they still had a long way to go before they could pronounce John Williams guilty. Or at least, they thought they did. Coming up, John Williams' trial takes a dark turn. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers... Join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. And now, back to our story. Christmas morning, 1811, was unusually tense in London. The local newspaper devoted two entire columns to the ongoing investigation into the murders on Ratcliffe Highway. They summarized everything that had happened in the Shadwell courtroom the night before and laid out the magistrate's case against the 27-year-old John Williams. But there were also plenty of other stories of mayhem and terror, seemingly caused by the fear that Londoners felt after the murders. For example, during one Christmas service in Greenwich, several parishioners became convinced that their church was under attack. They panicked and caused a minor stampede on their way out of the chapel. Residents seemed to be losing trust in local authorities. And even though the Shadwell magistrates had made some progress in John's case the night before, calls for reform were gaining traction. The magistrates realized that this case needed to be closed as soon as possible. Their very jobs were at stake. So instead of observing Christmas with their families, two of the magistrates went back to Newgate Debtors' Prison to re-examine Mr. Vermelo. 
Vermelo's wife hadn't been able to positively identify the mall the night before, but the magistrate knew she'd be visiting him in prison that day. The investigators brought the mall and also took the bloody crowbar found next to Mr. Williamson's body, just in case. Now, Mrs. Vermelo, I know you were a bit hesitant in identifying the mall last night, but if you could just take another look... Uh, Oh, yes, that's from the pear tree. I barely unwrapped it, ma'am. You sure you don't want to take a closer look? No, she was just confused last night. That mall is from our establishment. Very well. How about this one? Iron crowbar found at the King's Arms. Let me see. Yep, looks like another of John Peterson's. Say, I've heard some talk of reward money, and since my wife and I have provided such helpful information, I will... talk about that at another time, Mr. Vermelo. Thank you for your help, and Merry Christmas. Though Mrs. Vermelo's sudden certainty about the weapon seemed odd, the investigators hardly cared. They had gotten a wealth of information from the couple. Now they had evidence that not one but two of the weapons were from the Pear Tree Tavern. And the Vermelos gave them even more information about their lodger, John Williams. According to them, the sailor occasionally used an alias. Though the sailor called himself a Scotsman, he'd been known to pass himself off as Irish as well. This added even more fuel to the theory that the small man with an Irish-sounding name, seen running away from the king's arms, was in fact John Williams. The Vermelos also mentioned that if Williams was the killer, he'd likely worked with an accomplice. The magistrates noted this theory but didn't act on it. They seemed to only be concerned with building a case against the suspect already in custody. At this rate, a conviction seemed almost inevitable— They didn't want to slow it down looking for additional suspects. The next day, December 26, 1811, the Shadwell magistrates called six witnesses to the public office for what they hoped would be a final hearing. John Williams was not invited to this one and spent the day in Cold Bathfield's prison. The magistrates almost felt ready to bring him to trial and planned to do so the very next day. They just needed to speak with a few more witnesses. A few other lodgers from the Pear Tree Public House were called to the stand and asked if they'd noticed anything odd about William's behavior in the previous few weeks. Two of them said they'd seen the suspect coming home late on the nights of the murders. One lodger also mentioned he'd seen Williams washing his stockings, which looked like they were covered in mud the day after the first murders. And the other man had a similar story related to the second set of murders— He said Williams borrowed his stockings before heading out on the night of the King's Arms Massacre. When he returned, the pants were caked in mud again. The roommate tried to inquire about the stained clothes. Williams said he'd been out at a few taverns that night, but that didn't quite make sense. His pants made it look like he'd made a quick, messy escape down one of the clay banks near the river. The most sensational testimony of the day came from a woman who lived next to the pear tree, a candle shop owner named Mrs. Orr. She described an odd interaction she'd had with Williams a few days before the Marr murders. 
I believe it was Saturday night. I was puttering around my house about half past one in the morning when I heard a jostling at the door. I thought a man was trying to break in and asked who he was. I immediately recognized the voice as Mr. Williams, and I let him come inside. What did he say, Mrs. Orr? Oh, he's always been a joker. He said, I'm a robber, but I assumed it was in jest. I let him inside straight away. He wasn't trying to rob you? No, sir. I I didn't think so at the time. I let him sit at my table and poured a drink. Then the conversation turned. He kept asking how many rooms were in my house and uh, about the state of my backyard. And just then, one of the night watchmen knocked on my door. Mr. Williams tried to stop him from coming in. Did he seem afraid of the night watchman? Perhaps. But eventually the man came in and showed me the strangest thing he'd found outside. A chisel. Looked like the one left next to poor Mrs. Williamson's body. Said it looked like it had been dropped on the ground outside. The next morning when I was examining the chisel, I noticed something carved into the handle. A set of initials. J.P. The investigators were both fascinated and disturbed by Mrs. Orr's story. It sounded like John Williams had attempted to break into her house only a few nights before the Mars were killed and dropped his weapon from the pear tree's tool chest outside when she caught him. But there were some holes in Mrs. Orr's story. For example, she implied that Williams was casing her house to rob it later, but he had been her neighbor for a long time and he already knew the layout. And besides, it didn't seem like either of the murders on Ratcliffe Highway were meant to be robberies. Nothing was stolen from the Mars Linen Shop, at least as far as the investigators could see. The killers did take Mr. Williamson's watch, but they left the tavern's cash box alone. The judges didn't probe any further into Mrs. Orr's story, though. They adjourned soon after she spoke. After all the witnesses and spectators filed out of the courtroom... The three Shadwell magistrates huddled together to consider the evidence. It seemed clear that Williams was their prime suspect, but their case against him was shaky. As the day came to a close, the magistrates prepared for the next day's trial, which would hopefully bring the clarity they needed. They'd call every witness who had spoken already and finally get a complete picture of Williams' whereabouts on the nights of December 7th and 19th. The three men had seen a lot of evidence that two or more murderers had been involved in the murders. They most likely agreed that Williams didn't act alone, but this trial would focus only on him. There would be time to look into accomplices later. The Shadwell Public Office was packed to the brim on the morning of December 27, 1811. The magistrates sat on a raised platform, staring down at the spectators who'd crammed themselves into the courtroom. The mall, still covered in blood and hair, was displayed at the front of the room. John Williams was supposed to arrive in chains from Coldbath Fields any minute. The crowd held their breath, waiting for the prisoner to arrive. Suddenly, the heavy door to the courtroom opened, but it wasn't Williams. Instead, a nervous-looking police officer avoided the crowd's gaze and took a deep breath. He solemnly broke the news to the magistrates. I regret to inform you all that 
The trial cannot go forward as planned. John Williams is dead. Now, wait one moment. The suspect is dead? How? Yes, when the turnkey went to fetch Mr. Williams this morning, it was clear that he'd perished at some point last night. Attempts to revive him were unsuccessful. I'm deeply sorry, sirs. 27-year-old John Williams had taken his own life. As the crowd gossiped and chattered amongst themselves, the magistrates whispered to each other. They had no idea what to do next. It didn't seem right to go forward with a trial when the accused wasn't around to defend themselves. Then again, the magistrates' entire livelihoods seemed to be at risk. If they failed to close this case, it would be incredibly embarrassing. Not only for them, but for every law enforcement agency in London. They couldn't let it go that easily. It only took a few minutes to come to a decision. The trial would proceed without the suspect. In fact, from the magistrate's point of view, it seemed like John Williams had already spoken for himself. They believed an innocent man wouldn't take his own life right before his day in court. They still wanted to talk to witnesses, but the purpose of the trial had shifted. This wasn't a search for the truth anymore. It was a search for confirmation of what they already knew. Or perhaps what they thought they knew. Coming up, a final verdict is given, but strange details continue to rush out. Now, back to the story. It only took a few minutes for the shock around John Williams' death to wear off. Everyone in the courtroom on December 27, 1811, was desperate to finish the trial before the new year. And now that the suspect couldn't speak for himself, it seemed like they could get it done even faster than that. The landlady of the Pear Tree Public House, Mrs. Vermelo, was first. She was asked once again if she could identify the mall found at the Mars Linen Shop. Just two days before, when the magistrates visited her at the debtor's prison, she'd seemed certain it was from John Peterson's trunk. But now, away from her husband, she became cagey again. The investigators wondered if she'd been hiding something, or if she was afraid of retaliation. They asked if she'd been intimidated by Williams before, or if she'd had any reason to be scared of him. You know that we run into some odd characters in the public house business. Soldiers, sailors, foreigners, all kinds. So there's not much I haven't seen. But Mr. Williams, he did intimidate me, yes. Was there any particular incident that caused you to feel this way? Anything you haven't told us? Well, yes, actually. At one point, one of Williams' roommates, Harrison, I believe his name was, came to me with a pair of his stockings covered in mud. He said he found them stuck behind a trunk and was certain that Williams soiled them. I went to bring the stockings to the washerwoman, but then I noticed on top of the mud were two fingerprints in blood. That's quite a revelation, Mrs. Vermelo. Why didn't you tell us about that the first time we talked with you? Or the second, for that matter? To be entirely honest, I was afraid. I thought he might murder me or one of his acquaintances. The landlady seemed confused and hysterical on the stand, 
But she did give the prosecutors what they believed was valuable information. One of John Williams' roommates had already mentioned a pair of muddy stockings left in his room the day after the Williamson murders, but he hadn't said anything about bloody fingerprints. Luckily, the magistrates didn't need to rely on Mrs. Vermelo alone. The roommate had given the pants over as evidence. Even though the mud had been washed out, there were a few small bloodstains left in the fabric. The investigators continued to question Mrs. Vermelo for several more minutes, but she still refused to say if she recognized any of the weapons. She said they resembled the tools stored at the pear tree, but would go no further. Eager to hear more about William's private life, the magistrates called up yet another man who lodged with him. This man, John Harrison, had not testified yet, but had shared a room with Williams for the previous few months. Harrison said he was one of the first people to suspect John Williams in the Ratcliffe Highway murders. He'd seen him come home late on the night of the Marr murders and claimed to have found the stockings with bloody fingerprints soon after that. He also remembered that Williams said he knew Mr. Marr and went on to say that Marr had a considerable amount of money. This raised Harrison's suspicions even more. The Shadwell magistrates finished up with Harrison. They seemed to have more than enough evidence to call John Williams guilty, even though a lot of it was questionable. After listening to one final witness, the investigators wasted no time writing out their verdict. 27-year-old John Williams was found guilty of all the murders on Ratcliffe Highway. And according to the Shadwell magistrates, he'd acted alone. As the witnesses and spectators filed out of the courtroom, the exhausted magistrates might have breathed a sigh of relief, but they knew their job was not quite done. They'd heard multiple witnesses say there were two or maybe even three people involved in the murders. Even with Williams out of the picture, it seemed likely that at least one of the killers was still at large. The magistrates had asked dozens of people for names of possible accomplices, and they'd heard two names come up over and over, Cornelius Hart and William Ablas. These two seemed most likely to be Williams' partners in crime, but neither had been interrogated as a suspect yet. Both Cornelius Hart and William Ablas were seen with John Williams on the night of the second murder, and Cornelius actually had a connection to the Marr Linen Shop. He'd been employed as a carpenter there and may have had access to the building as a result. William Ablas didn't have any known connection to the Marr family, but he did visit the King's Arms Tavern frequently. In fact, according to one witness, he was there with John Williams on the night of December 19th, when the Williamsons were killed. On December 28, 1811, the investigators gathered at the public office once again to examine witnesses and suspects. They interrogated William Ablas about his whereabouts on the night of the murders at the King's Arms. Ablas admitted to being with John Williams at the pub that night and said they went to a few other taverns afterward. But Williams had said he went to a doctor that night and Ablas didn't mention anything of the sort. The magistrates didn't notice this discrepancy. Ablas's landlady and roommate backed up his alibi. According to them, he came home around 10 p.m. and was in the lodging house during the murders at the King's Arms. 
The judges accepted the testimony of these witnesses and didn't seem to consider that they might be lying to protect their friend. They let Ablas go without any more questions. Now that John Williams was dead, it didn't seem worth it to do any more than the bare minimum. Besides, it felt like there was a more urgent issue. What to do with a convict's body? The public wouldn't be happy to hear John Williams took his own life. In 1811 London, public executions were still a fundamental part of the criminal justice system. A man who died in prison had cheated the gallows and dodged a key part of his punishment. In the days after the verdict was announced, the magistrates tried to figure out how to give the public closure. An autopsy was done on John Williams' body, and his cause of death was confirmed as suicide. Ironically, suicide was considered a type of murder at the time. In the eyes of the law, Williams was now guilty of taking eight lives, four from the Mar Linen Shop, three from the King's Arms Tavern, and his own. On December 30, 1811, one of the Shadwell magistrates met with a government official to figure out what to do with the body. Because it seemed too respectful to give the prisoner a proper funeral, the men eventually chose to bury him at a crossroads near the scene of the murders. They wanted to get it over with before the new year. John Williams' body was paraded through the streets of East London the next morning. He was mounted on a cart with the bloody maul and crowbar next to him. More than 10,000 people lined the streets as he was dragged past the Mars Linen Shop, the Pear Tree Public House, and finally the King's Arms Tavern. The cart stopped at each location for about 10 minutes, as if Williams needed time to think about his misdeeds. But the corpse was nearly four days old at this point. The body couldn't hold any position, and his head flopped to the side over and over, unable to look at the scenes of his alleged crimes. Finally, the procession arrived at the crossroads where Williams would be buried. Grave diggers made a hole that was too small for the man. They didn't think he deserved to go into the afterlife comfortably. The 27-year-old sailor's body was tossed into the grave. One of the cart drivers jumped in after him and drove a wooden stake into John Williams' heart. He grabbed the maul off the cart and gave the stake a few whacks with it for good measure. The crowd screamed and jeered as the hole was filled with dirt, covering up John Williams for good. Within a few hours, the mob dispersed. Paving stones were placed over the grave, making it look like any of the other intersections in London. The dramatic burial was over, and it looked like the story of the Ratcliffe Highway murders was, too. As the year 1811 came to a close, Londoners seemed ready to put this dark chapter behind them. With John Williams dead and buried, the city finally began to calm down. The Shadwell magistrates continued to search for an accomplice, but as public pressure waned, so did their sense of urgency. The carpenter, Cornelius Hart, was interrogated in the first few days of January 1812. But much like William Ablas, he was let go soon after. Then, on January 6th, another clue suddenly fell into the investigators' laps. Ever since the first murders, various law enforcement agencies had been looking for the knife or razor that had been used to slash the Marr family's throats. And even though they recovered all the other weapons used in the murders, the last one continued to evade them. 
That is, until John Williams' roommate from the pear tree, John Harrison, contacted the magistrates. He said he just remembered a strange encounter with Williams from around the time of the murders, though he couldn't remember exactly when. About three weeks ago, Williams borrowed my handkerchief for the day. He seemed to forget, and when I asked him to give it back, he snapped, told me to go over to the dresser, search around in his coat pockets, and find it for myself. So there I went, looking in the pockets, and my thumb nicks on something sharp. He had a new French knife just sitting there, six inches long. I asked him where he'd got it, and he just shrugged, said he'd bought it a few days before. Right. Did you ever see this knife again? No, sir. After he was taken to prison, I searched up and down the pear tree for it, even checked his sea chest, and there was no sign of the thing. This is fascinating information, Mr. Harrison. If I may ask, why did you only come up with it now? We talked to you for quite some time, if I recall correctly. I didn't think it was important at the time, sir. This new piece of evidence was interesting, but it was strange that Harrison hadn't brought up the knife before. It should be noted that a considerable amount of reward money was still on the table. Harrison was already likely to get some because of his testimony about the muddy stockings and may have thought a few new details could increase his earnings. This story was most likely a fake, but it did convince the Shadwell magistrates to finally conduct a thorough search of the Pear Tree Lodging House. The idea hadn't occurred to them until then. Unfortunately, nothing important showed up in their search, and the case went cold. John Harrison showed up with another clue in mid-January. This time, he said he'd found a blood-stained jacket which he recognized as belonging to Williams. When officers searched the pear tree again, they were surprised to find a bloody knife sticking out of a mouse hole near William's bed. Though this clue was shocking, it's hard to believe that it was anything more than another grab for prize money. It would be easy to stain a jacket with animal blood, and it's unlikely that a murderer would leave his knife still covered in blood in such an easy-to-find location. And even if this was real... It only added more credence to the dead man's conviction. The magistrates had moved on. Now they were only interested in John Williams' possible accomplices. But that search wasn't going well either. The magistrates had interrogated and released both of their strongest suspects and hadn't gotten a new lead in days. Because the Shadwell investigators were clearly faltering, a government official ordered a magistrate from another district to look at it himself. This man arrested both William Ablas and Cornelius Hart again and tried to create a case against each of them. He kept the suspects in prison for more than two weeks but couldn't find any evidence. Eventually, the prime minister urged this magistrate to release them from prison in early February. And just like that, the case fizzled out. The reward money was finally paid out at the end of February 1812. Predictably, the Vermelos and John Harrison were the most highly compensated. But the Ratcliffe Highway murders still cast a long shadow over British society. Debates exploded across the country about policing and law enforcement. The current patchwork system had allowed these brutal murders to happen. Perhaps something more organized would have caught the killers more quickly or stopped the crime in the first place. 
At first, Londoners were resistant to the idea of a central, well-funded police force. The concept seemed to be at odds with traditional English liberties, and it would take nearly 20 years for the Metropolitan Police of London to be established. But it seems almost certain that the horrors of Ratcliffe Highway planted the seed in residents' minds. Ironically, these murders may have indirectly ensured that an organized police force existed by the time the East End's more notorious killer, Jack the Ripper, came to stalk the streets nearly 80 years later. It's easy to see that the investigation into the Ratcliffe Highway murders was not up to modern standards. And because it happened more than 200 years ago, it's hard to put together the pieces. It seems clear that John Williams was convicted out of convenience, but whether he was actually involved in the murders is up for debate. A few researchers have pointed out that the evidence against him was all circumstantial. Some even argue that he didn't take his own life and was killed by the actual murderers in his jail cell. Prison guards were easy to bribe, and the forensic science of the time wouldn't have picked up on it. Nearly everyone who has looked into the case, including the investigators of the time, did seem to agree on one thing. Even if Williams was the killer, it is highly unlikely that he acted alone. And while Cornelius Hart and William Ablas were the leading suspects, it's entirely possible that William's accomplice was someone the magistrates never heard of. The investigators bungled so many details that the case is essentially incomprehensible at this point. Even the spot where John Williams was buried was almost forgotten until the early 1900s, when a group of road workers uncovered the skull. For a while, his skull was displayed behind the bar of a nearby pub. But then, fittingly, it disappeared without a trace. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the Ratcliffe Highway murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mall and the Pear Tree, The Ratcliffe Highway Murders, 1811, by P.D. James and T.A. Critchley, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders is written by Pamela Sue Anton, with writing assistance by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hoffseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Drew Lawn, Melissa Medina, Cameron Nicod, and Laith Walshlager. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>